0: by land to Assos, where he had arranged for us to join him while we traveled by ship. He joined us there while we sailed together to Mytilene. The next day we sailed past the island of Chios, the following day we crossed to the island of Samos, and a day later we arrived at Meletus. Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus, for he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, in time for the festival of Pentecost. But when we landed at Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus, asking them to come and meet him. When they arrived, he declared, You know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plot of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God, and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me, unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus." The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and my many tears for you. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. Thank you, Wayne.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Good to see you all this morning, everybody. I want to continue the conversation that we began last Sunday when, on the theme of what we all need. And uh, so this is part two. If you weren't here last Sunday, or you, and I know there are people who are watching at home online, uh, It is available for you, of course, as every Sunday is, available to you to watch online. I'll go back and review online and uh, hear what we were speaking about. I want to pick, so it's this, what we all need, and I said what we all need is repentance. And uh, I want to pick up this theme from Acts 20 verse 21, where Paul says, We have one message for everyone. The necessity of repenting from sin, turning to God and of having faith, believing loyalty in our Lord Jesus. So this is what Paul says. One of the things I really like about this passage is it's a climactic passage in the life of Paul. If you're familiar with his life, you would know that. If you're not familiar, let me just unpack that for you to say that Paul, this is the last conversation that Paul expects to have with the group of leaders from the church at Ephesus while he... And so it's an important conversation. If you ever, ever know much about like deathbed conversations or final conversations, you, you, you want to leave that conversation. If you're the one who's speaking, you want to leave what's most important to you. Don't Don't you want that ringing in people's ears at that moment. So this is what Paul is. He's got this group of elders or overseers that have come. Uh, from Ephesus to meet with him. He's on his way to Jerusalem, all those things. And so he's saying to them, this is stuff I want you to carry forward. But part of what he's, he, he reminds them of these things that he did, like he lived in Ephesus for three years. He was explaining who Jesus was in that Roman uh, city with its great infrastructure, its magnificent library and all these kind of things. It was a mega city of the day. And in that place, Paul's saying, I had one message for everybody and you guys all know that. And my message, it didn't matter whether I was speaking to a Jew or a non-Jew, a Gentile. It's this message, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith In our Lord Jesus. You'll see in the next, in the work next to faith, I've put in brackets, you won't find this in your translations, but I put it in for my benefit. I think this is really helpful. We have a lot of, um, I think, unbiblical ideas about what faith is. Some people think it's, oh, it's positive, speaking positively. Like, yep, faith. Faith actually releases that sense of confident hope so we do speak positively, but that's actually not what faith is from a biblical perspective. I could give you a little bit of a, a Greek history, lecture on this word, but I won't. I just simply say the best way to translate faith is believing loyalty. You have faith in Jesus Christ and you express it by believing loyalty to Jesus. Allegiance is another word that you could use. I demonstrate that I have faith in Christ by my allegiance to Jesus. If I don't have any allegiance to Jesus, if I don't express that I have believing loyalty to Jesus, I don't. Remember the book of James? Some of you are familiar with the book of James. We're working through it in our house churches. It says, do you believe there's only one God? Well, so does Satan. Like whoop-de-doo. It's no big deal to believe there's only one God. Satan has no loyalty to God. He's in fact committed to rebel against God. The advers- he's his adversary, which is how to translate that. So this idea of, I have faith in our Lord Jesus. So I repent, I turn to God, and I have believing loyalty in the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul says. He said, People, you know that this is my message. You know that I labored in Ephesus for these, these three years. You know that I, I wept over the condition of people because I wanted them to come to this place of believing loyalty to Jesus. It didn't matter whether they are Jews or non-Jews. I wanted them all to come into that reality. So we spent some time last week talking about repentance and we said repentance produces change. And I've slightly, I've added this statement that I'm, I made this statement last week, but I've added, edited it this week. Uh, so repentance begins at a point in time to initiate a lifelong process which produces deep change to conform every thought, word and behaviour to God's character and commands. And it was interesting that uh, in the interview that happened just a few minutes ago, uh, there was conversations about eight-year-olds, and for me, the point in time that I remember was as a nine-year-old. When my parents took me to a meeting, uh, we, I, we were regular in church on Sundays, but this particular weekend we went to a meeting in another, phys- in another property. And as a nine-year-old, there was an opportunity to invite and a response. And I walked the aisle just like that person was doing there, but I didn't go and sit down. I came all the way to the front um, as that sign of, I am giving my life to Jesus Christ. I was nine years old. That was where, if you like, that process of repentance, of believing loyalty to Jesus began, of of turning from sin, turning to God, that process began. When I was 13, I did it again. When I was 15, I was baptised in the Holy Spirit. When I was 16, I was Im- immersed in water. These are, All I'm telling you this is not so that you know my biography. That's not what I'm about. But what I'm saying is I'm just using my life as a bit of a demonstration that this, this process begins at a point, but it keeps moving forward. We keep moving forward and it produces this deep change, which is still going on in me. To conform every thought, word, every word, and all my behavior to God's character and commands. That's the end goal. Now, last week we were looking in Colossians 3, and we talked about our life being hidden in Christ. And it's like, that's where we're going. In other words, Christ is the goal. And you've heard me say this many, many times. Christ is the goal. I measure myself against Jesus. I don't measure myself against other human beings, except in the way of how am I tracking in terms of my pursuit of Christ. So the question for all of us is about becoming more like Jesus. And that, and the only way I know if I'm becoming more like Jesus is if I pay attention to what comes out of my mouth, and particularly what comes out of my mouth when life is not working well, when I'm under pressure. That tells me the true condition of my heart. That's a sobering reality. Uh, last week I introduced to some of you the, the concept of repentance as an iceberg. And we said it has these different levels and layers. And as we grow and mature, we're moving through these different levels and layers. And the first one is the direction layer. The second one is a relationships layer. And the third one is our whole sense of being. Coming, right? And remember, this is about conforming the direction of my life, the relationships of my life, my central being, to conform it to Christ and Him. And, of course, I'm not doing this under just under my own efforts. I'm choosing this, but the Holy Spirit is actually doing the work in me. I just keep saying yes to Jesus. Yes, God, yes, God, yes, God, I submit myself to you. So here's how the first level works. In direction, We I, I realize that repentance is when I realize I am rebellious against God. Now, for some of it, it can be passive rebellion. It can be outwardly looking like you're doing okay, but actually inwardly, your heart is far from God. For other people, their outward behavior shows you that they are far from God. So repentance brings me to the point of saying, I realize I'm rebellious against God and that's not a good thing. I realize that Jesus Christ has redeemed and reconciled me to God, which is a really good thing. And so repentance means I bring myself into submission and allegiance and obedience to Jesus Christ. Those things happen in that order. I submit to Jesus. I say, Jesus, you're my Lord. You're my Savior. I give you my allegiance and I learn to obey you and I move forward from that point that 's where we begin that 's where the whole that 's the point of initiation is to realize i 'm actually rebellious against you God and that is that 's a, a way that leads to death perhaps you 've seen someone standing on a street corner with um, the old old word was sandwich boards, but maybe you haven 't seen sandwich or holding a sign that says something like um, uh, repent or burn, or words to that effect. Or maybe you've actually stood on a street corner and proclaimed that in a loud voice. Um, and you know, full courage to you if you've done that. Um, and I was think, saw this thing this week where people were like someone was sitting. It was a. It was one of these meme things, right? You know, you know what a meme is. And this person is sitting in their doctor's surgery, right? and having consultation and uh they're saying to the doctor oh i really hate those christians who say turn or burn you know turn to god or you are going to burn for all eternity and then the then they say to the doctor so how's my health doctor and the doctor says uh you need to give up smoking or you're going to die and um the person says oh thank you so much for telling me the truth you can, see the, you can see the paradox, how that plays out. So on the one hand, it's like, I don't want a message that tells me I've got to change and turn to God, otherwise I'm going to be in problems for all eternity, right? But on the other hand, I do want to know the truth. So, okay, that's where we begin. We move on to relationships, and this is the reality of... I, I realise that actually as a human being, I'm hurt and disappointed and I'm committed to avoid pain. This is where I'm at with my relationships. And I've got a self-protective strategy. I've got a strategy, right? Now, the thing is that this, this strategy actually sh- protects me, but it actually shrivels my heart. It isolates me and produces this aching loneliness. And I think, why am I so lonely? And do you know what? Some people would say there's an epidemic of loneliness in the world. And some people would say there's even an epidemic of loneliness in the church. And I want to put to you this morning that it could be because we're so committed to avoid hurt and pain and disappointment in our relationships, it's actually impacting all of our relationships, including those of us in the body of Christ, where, we, where we, we've got these walls around about us. Now look, let's go back to that first bit of that statement, I am hurt and disappointed. There isn't a person in this room or a person that's watching on this web stream that has not been hurt or disappointed. Let's have a look around the room, see if you can spot one. Someone who's not been hurt or disappointed by relationships. If you find that person, um, have them stand up so that we can meet them and find out what that's like. Because for the rest of us, we've actually got hurt and disappointment that we've, we've experienced as we've gone through life. Um, some of us have had to pull arrows and knives out of our backs We've had to, We've had. Some of us have been in ICU, on life support, because of the damage that other people have done to us. I don't want to minimise any of that, but I want to say that actually, we want. To, God wants to bring healing into every aspect of our lives and relationships, and heal those hurts so that we are free to love like he loves. And this idea of we must look at Christ, Christ must be our example. We look at Christ on the cross to understand the, the pain and the suffering that he went through and all that he experienced is far beyond anything that any of us can imagine or have experienced. And so we have to look at him and what he does and his response. And we say, I've got to learn to do what Jesus did when he experienced the pain of rejection of his family. How many of you have got family rejection issues going on? They don't understand you because you're following Christ. If you know the life of Jesus, you know that his family came to one of his meetings and it's like, we need to take this guy out because he's lost it. Like they 'd just take him out of the meeting, I mean, not take him out <laughs> just to clarify that need to they came to take hold of him and like because it was an embarrassment to the family in in some senses of the things that he was saying, saying and proclaiming about himself, so this idea that you might go through life and and not experience misunderstanding even in your own family, even if that family is a Christian family, that that's uh, going to set you up for, some, for experiencing Christian pain. You should expect it. And part of that challenge is because there are things that God's saying to you that he wants you to do. He's not saying them to your family. So when your family says, the Lord is saying this to me, They were like, they might, now I want to say this really carefully because you do got to weigh these things up, but their response might not be to jump up and clap their hands and say, that's amazing, go and do that, right? They might ask some probing questions for you, which would be important for you to answer. And sometimes as I've experienced this before I was married and Julie and I have experienced it together as a married couple. When God was saying things to us to do and our family were actually opposing us, rather than seeing that as a bad thing, although it was painful and difficult, we actually, it actually caused us to really evaluate have we really heard from God? Have we really heard from God? Having answered that question, we then moved forward, having heard what our families had said, having heard what otherwise wise and mature Christians had said, but being anchored in, we have heard from God. And many of you know our story of how. I'll use this as a bit of an illustration here. It was the whole thing of actually God calling us to sell everything we had and to go. And live in America for a couple of years and for me to do some studies over there. But it required us to sell everything. And lots of Christians, well-meaning Christians said that is not wise to do. Oh, good reason for that. Wasn't my preference either, by the way. (laughs) My first choice was, God, we're doing this. And I thank you in, in advance for the millionaires that will put the money into our account and, and that will be that confirming word for, for us. And we will know that the Lord has said, go and I've made a way for you. So uh, that didn't happen. Uh, God said, trust me and I'll provide. Pearl of great price. Sell everything. It's worth it. And we look back to that time uh, 20 plus years ago and we say, absolutely, it was worth it. But... We don't go around telling everybody that's what they have to do. It was what the Lord told us to do. So this idea that we can have uh, kind of a this lovely, cocooned, kind of safe life, even within the church and even within a Christian school is a, I is, is a, um, can't find the right word, but it's a mistake to think that's going to happen. But the thing is, what am I going to do here? Am I going to protect myself from that pain and disappointment and what people might do, which will actually isolate me? Or am I going to open my heart and say, God, increase my capacity to love even those who are speaking against me, who who are misunderstanding me at this moment? So, because I want to keep growing in you. I want to understand this. Now... I want to say a word to parents this morning, because parenting today, I think it's probably been said for every generation, parenting today's generation is one of the most complex things you can do. It, is, it really is. The complexity of parenting today, I think, is far beyond um, some of what we experienced, it was difficult when we were doing it, mainly because you're young and immature, you don't have much of a clue and you're trying to work it out at the same time as you're actually doing it. And it's really difficult. But with with the way that our society is working, I would put it this way, when I was in school, in primary school, I went to a state school and I went to a state high school, I would say that our culture was in one sense not antagonistic or hostile to Christian faith and values, certainly in the schools that I was part of. Um, but as our culture has moved further and further away from biblical standards, and to give you an indication of how far it's moved, when I was in primary school, we said the Lord's Prayer in a public high school. In public school. We would say the Lord's Prayer um, It was part of what we did. Now, we've moved a long way from that. And so there's this complexity. But I, And I want to encourage you, parents, you cannot take your eye off the ball here with your kids. We had to pay attention all the time. And I will openly tell you that my wife was... Hyper vigilant, more vigilant than I was. Somewhere in there, no, hyper, hyper sounds a bad word, so it wasn't that. Um, she was far more discerning than I was. As a man, I didn't often understand all the warning signs that she picked up on. Now, hopefully, in, in your in your context, there's there's someone paying attention to those things. I want to say it's it's a difficult thing and it's a challenging thing, but I want to say, actually, parents, one of the things you need to learn and grow in is the fact of how your strategy to protect yourself from pain is influencing your parenting. That's the point I want to make. How is your strategy to protect yourself from hurt and disappointment, how is that influencing your parenting? Because I see it consistently in people's lives. Whereas parents, they're making choices, but really what they're doing is they're protecting themselves from the pain and the disappointment that might come their way from their child, you know, saying things about them or doing things. So just, I want—I just want to say, be aware of that. Actually, ask yourself that question: How is my strategy to protect myself? From pain and disappointment, how is that influencing my parenting, the choices I'm making for my children, the things I'm seeking after? The next level of this is about, in its core of our being, I'm fearful and uncertain as a man or a woman. I'm living in a conflicted world where nothing is right apart from God. And so this reality is like, I actually... I'm, I'm actually quite scared internally because I actually don't know really how to be a man or I don't know how to be a woman. Now, this is not an age thing that goes on, by the way, but it's this thing of, like, I don't know. And again, in the, in the culture that we are living in right now, the messages uh, that we have been bombarded by and immersed in for more than 20-plus years about what it means to be a man or a woman – And do not align, for the most part, with the biblical ideals. Again, we've got to learn to discern. Where do I get this idea about what it means to be a man? Where do I get this idea about what it means to be a woman? And does that align with actually what God has said? The airwaves are flooded with opinions on this and uncertainty. And again... Can I just say, parents, you've got to resolve this and you've got to help your kids navigate it. But we all got to do that together. We talk about it it takes a village to raise a child, and it does. And in that village, there needs to be people that are modelling for all of our children growing up, what it means to be an authentic, godly man, what it means to be an authentic, godly woman. And those are, that needs to be anchored in Scripture anchored in what God has said. Now, you're never going to understand that unless you actually take the time to invest and actually read the scripture looking for these kind of answers. What does it mean? What does a godly man really look like? Now, Jesus is a primary example of that, but there are other examples we can learn from. And the same with womanhood as well. What does it actually mean? Okay? key thing is is not to be driven by fear. Got to root out fear. Got to not be driven by fear, not motivated by fear. So repentance is following Christ into the world and offering my being as a man or a woman for the righteous good of others. Now I spent a lot of time last week unpacking what the righteous good of others means, so I'm not going to do that this week again. So here it is. Here's the summary of it, the three of them all together. Uh, repentance has to happen at a direction level, it has to happen in my relationships and it has to happen in, the, in my being as well, in the core of my being. That's what we're talking about today because repentance produces change that begins at one point in time, it initiates, the next slide, when I, if I swipe, will that go, there we go, to the next slide. Right? This, is what, this is what we're talking about. Repentance ought to produce deep change. one of the things that really um, it happened for me when I was growing up it happened and and this is one of this this is a little bit weird, okay, so we'll just say it, and it happened as when I was about the age of sixteen, I began to be hyper observant of the marriages and families and relationships in the church that I grew up in. And I began to notice the weaknesses and the strengths in them. And I began to think to myself, why is it that these people have been following Christ all these years, but they are still behaving in this kind of way? Why do I see ungodly behavior pointed out? And I think it's because they didn't hear a message of repentance like what I'm giving you today. They, they repented at a directional level, but, that, but it didn't go deeper. It didn't dive deep into the very core of their being, of actually wrestling with every thought, word and behaviour and bringing that into submission to Christ and conformity with Christ. And everyone gets to a certain level. Um, I'll say, say it like this. Your marriage and family and your relationships work at the acceptable level of dysfunction that you allow. Your marriage, your family and all your relationships work at the acceptable level of dysfunction that you allow, right? So all I'm saying is we are all malfunctioning human beings in, in that sense. And that's a beautiful word. When God created everything and it was good, Genesis 1, sorry... He saw that it was all healthy and functional, is another way to translate that. Good's too small a word. When God created everything, he saw it was healthy and functional. In other words, at the end of that creation story, he's like, everything I've created is functioning as I created it to function and is a healthy system. Genesis 1 and 2, and then you get Genesis 2, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11, and it's all pear-shaped by Genesis twelve. Completely, completely dysfunctional, completely unhealthy. That's what we live in. But this is what God's calling us to be as his people. It's like, we want we to tr- g- grow beyond this. So it's like, yeah, okay, God, help me. I'm stuck with a level of dysfunction in my marriage, in my relationships. I want to grow beyond that, but I need help. Help me, God, unlock me, free me and bring me into this place is the question you want to say. Now, churches and ministries can undermine repentance, and I want to wrap up with this over the next just few minutes and just point out a couple of things. Did you know that? You know that churches and Christian ministries can actually undermine repentance? Yeah, you can. We can. You can. We, I can. We can. We can do it together. You know, I don't believe that we all would sit down and conspire Okay, as a church, how can we undermine repentance? You know, I don't think the staff at FCC sit around and conspire. Okay, how can we undermine repentance in the school? Or any Christian organization or ministry, they never do that. But actually we do it in ways that, aren't expli- that we don't actually think about. Here's how we undermine repentance. Number one, we fail to discern rebellion and emotional immaturity. There's a difference between those things. You can have the same behaviour in two individuals, one person who knows that it is the wrong thing to do and they are absolutely rebellious. But the other person could be emotionally immature and they need to be discipled that that behaviour is actually not a Christ-like godly behaviour. So a church can undermine repentance if it fails to discern the difference between rebellion and emotional immaturity. Secondly, we undermine repentance when we emphasize doing for God over being with God and that's that's pretty epidemic because um, in the last 30 years there's been a major push through most of the body of Christ um, certainly in Western society about you've got to show yourself to be relevant to the culture so get out there and do things. Get out there and change the world. All right? And so... Christians been running around, sometimes like headless trooks. It's an image you want in your mind, don't you? It's one I have from my childhood when my dad got it. Anyway. <laughs> we had barbecue trook for dinner that night. Um, people, Many Christians are running around trying to validate they are Christian to a, to a world that is right quite happy for you to perform that dance but the bigger, but the question is unless we are in the presence of God and sent from the presence of God we've got no fuel we run out of love very quickly when we have the second commandment in first place rather than the first commandment in first place to love God which is part of the reason why we continue to say the prayer room is the centre of the life of this church because we go into the presence of God together. We spend time there. We, we ask him to fill us up with his love so that we can go out into the world and give it away. I've seen many Christians, and I've been one myself, who have got this out of, the, out of order And you and you just become more and more frustrated with people because they don't get with your program. It's like, come on. Can't you see this is the way to go? And God's going, Come and spend time with me, have a conversation with me. And one of the things that Paul talks about in Acts twenty that we read earlier is Ephesians. He talks about with my prayers and with my tears before the Lord. And the thing is, if we have not been in the presence of God and weeping tears over the people that we want to see changed, we've got it all out of order. We allow people to offer less than their best. We just go, oh, near enough is good enough. She'll be right, mate. That's a pretty Aussie thing to do. Okay, that's probably don't need to spend too much time. This is how we undermine repentance when we when we say when we don't require people to do stuff. So this happens in our serving teams. And this is why our serving team coordinators Um, get poked and prodded by me to go, call your team up. Call it up to a higher standard. We are not settling for lowest common denominator service. We want people to give their best to God. Now, you've got to measure what's the best that that person can bring because we're not saying everyone got the same standard. We're saying, are they bringing their best is the question. Okay, another way we undermine repentance is we don't talk about the elephant in the room. You know those awkward meetings and you're sitting in and you're sitting with a group of people and there's an elephant in the middle of the room but no one's talking about that elephant like we're leaning around it to talk to one another. It's like, you've got to talk about the elephant in the room. You've got to find a way to do that. Now, it takes skill and diplomacy and my wife is a legitimate expert on this. She just does it intuitively. I'm sitting there trying to work out how do we talk about the elephant in the room. She just knows how to do it. I learned from her. Encourage others of you to consider her as a great model and mentor. Um, so, but this idea that we 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 need to be a people in the body of Christ who we who we talk about the elephant in the room. Okay, uh, and. F- the final thing is, we undermine repentance if we neglect the day of the Lord. If we don't keep reminding people, the day of the Lord is coming, the end of all evil, Jesus will return, he will govern the earth. That will undermine, that, if people don't, if people lose sight of that, and Peter has this in his letters in, to the church, he warns it, he warns it. People lose the plot as Christians we're talking about. Remember this. When you see Christians, and some of you, there's very high profile Christians, that are behaving badly. It makes the media and it's go, I can guarantee you some of that will be because they've, they've had a culture in their lives that's undermined repentance. And one of the things that will be missing is they've forgotten the day of the Lord and the day they will stand and give an account to the Heavenly Father for what they've done and for how they've led. And I've shared with you before. It's one of the things that drives and motivates me and, and I evaluate myself by it all the time. I get to give an account to Jesus for the way that I lead you. Okay, so how do we promote repentance? Wrap up with this. We have to differentiate rebellion and emotional immaturity. We have to sustain doing for God by being with God. We have to require people to offer their best. We've got to talk about the elephant in the room and we've got to look forward to the day of the Lord. Here we go, landing right here. Repentance produces change. It begins. Probably all of you in this room have got a beginning point where that process began. I want to encourage you this morning. Keep going with it. So far as I know, it doesn't stop until your breathing stops. I'm 60. I've worked it out so far. For The last 51 years I've been in doing this and I'll keep doing it because I want to conform every thought, word and behavior to God's character and commands. Give Paul the last word. We have one message for everyone. The necessity of repenting from sin, turning to God and having faith, believing loyalty in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray together. And as we pray, i just invite you. I want to invite everyone. Maybe Maybe today will be the initiation process for you into repentance. Or maybe today it's a renewal of that process of repentance. But wherever you're at, if it's your first time, you say, Jesus, I submit my life to you. Just breathe that out as you pray. Jesus, I submit my life to you. I surrender to you as Lord. I give you my allegiance. I thank you for your work on the cross that saves me and reconciles me to God the Father. Help me to live a lifestyle of repentance so that I will grow more and more into the image and likeness of yourself, Jesus. And Father, my prayer for us all as your people in this region is that these words from Paul would be true for each of us as we go from here today. That we have one message, doesn't matter who you are, Jew, Gentile, it's repentance, stopping rebelling, turning to God and giving faithful allegiance to Jesus. Help us to be people who articulate this in winsome and wise ways to a world that desperately needs to hear it. This is my prayer for your honour and glory, God. Amen.